Section 43 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide Part 20 the Gossauterzook Tragedy, Part 19. John W. Butler testifies that he knew Goss intimately and corresponded with him some years ago, that he knew his handwriting very well and believes himself able to recognize it. The letter signed W.S. Goss, before mentioned, being shown him, he answered, I believe this to be Goss's handwriting. The two letters signed A.C. Wilson, also before mentioned, being shown this witness, he answered that the writing in his judgment is that of Goss. The signature of A.C. Wilson on the register of the Central Hotel in Philadelphia, under date of blank, being shown the witness, he answered that he would take this to be written by Goss, as also the signature on the register of the William Penn Hotel, though in respect to these single signatures, his judgment is less distinct than that expressed in regard to the letters. The intelligence manifested by this witness, as well as the caution observed in expressing his judgment, should be considered in estimating the value of his testimony. Franklin Mills testifies that he knew the man called Wilson, and upon one occasion, when sitting at his side, discovered a small scar running up into his hair on the side of his forehead that he had never noticed it before. Mrs. Goss testified that her husband had no scar upon him. You have heard the comments of counsel in respect to this, and will determine what weight this contradiction should have. But in doing so, will remember that Mr. Mills speaks of the man more than a year after Mrs. Goss had last seen her husband. Now, was this man, called Wilson at Cooperstown in Newark, Winfield Scott Goss, under an assumed name? If he was, you will judge whether the conclusion is or is not reasonable that he had entered into a scheme to obtain money fraudulently from the insurance companies, and that the burning of his shop was a part of this scheme. If you reach this conclusion, a reason will be found for his appearance in Pennsylvania and New Jersey under an assumed name. Still, if you find that this man was Goss under an assumed name, you will have made but a step towards finding that the remains discovered in the woods were his. But now, if this was Goss, we have him in Newark on the evening of the 25th day of June, sixteen days preceding the discovery in the woods. He then started for Philadelphia. Mrs. Toombs testifies that, three days later, he wrote to her from Philadelphia under date of the 28th. Francis Jacobs testifies that he is clerk and bartender at the William Penn Hotel in Philadelphia, that in the forenoon of the 26th, the day after this man left Mrs. Toombs's, a man came to the hotel representing himself to be A.C. Wilson and registering this as his name. The witness describes him, and being shown the photograph exhibited here, says it looks like this man. He is unable to describe any other stranger who called about that time or since, 
and says he did not recognize the resemblance in the photograph until told whose it was. You will judge whether this witness can truly describe this man, as he undertakes to do, and whether he does see the resemblance in the picture to which he testifies. That a man came to the hotel, representing himself to be A.C. Wilson, that the witness saw him register his name, that he stayed till the next day, that the prisoner visited him, occupying the same room, and went away with him the next day, the witness is positive. The register is produced, and the name A.C. Wilson appears upon it, and this signature, as we have seen, Miss Taylor and Mr. Butler expressed the judgment is in the handwriting of Goss. If this witness is believed, it is on the morning of the 27th that the prisoner and this man left the William Penn. Where they went at that time does not appear. On the evening of the following day, the prisoner was seen upon the train at Wilmington by Mr. Hodgson, who rode with him to Philadelphia. We do not observe any conflict between the testimony of Mr. Hodgson and that of Mr. Jacobs, because we fail to see inconsistency between the facts to which they speak. Two days later, Francis Pyle, who lives near West Grove in this county, testifies that the prisoner, in company with another man, came to his place. He says he had known the prisoner formerly and recognized him. Mrs. Pyle and the little boy, Elmer Pyle, also saw the men there, and say they recognized the prisoner as one of them. Mr. Pyle and the boy describe the appearance and parts of the dress of the other, referring to his build, his whiskers, and mustache. Mrs. Pyle saw but little of him, and was not very near. Mr. Pyle says he wore gaiters like those shown here, and had a ring on his finger. Upon being shown the photograph, he says it looks like a picture of this man. The son also, in addition to the general description, says this man wore gaiters, had eyeglasses, and that when they were together under the cherry tree, this man called the prisoner doctor. This last circumstance, if true, is very significant, for, as we have seen, if the witnesses are believed, this is the same appellation by which Goss, in Baltimore, and the man calling himself Wilson, in Newark, addressed Utterzook. From Mr. Pyle's place, these men went in the direction of Jennerville. In the evening of the same day, Mr. Jeffress, Mrs. Jeffress, and Mr. Townley testified that the prisoner, with another man, appeared at the hotel of Mr. Jeffress in Jennerville. These witnesses recognized the prisoner, as does also Mr. Wallace, who saw him there and had known him before. They described the other man as about five feet eight to nine inches in height, good-looking, full-breasted, straight, with shoulders thrown back, mustache and side-whiskers of a dark color, Mrs. Jeffress saying that she at the time thought he was the straightest man she had ever seen. On being shown the photograph before referred to, these witnesses also say the picture resembles this man. The next morning, being the first of July, it is shown, if the testimony is believed, that the prisoner obtained a horse of Mr. Patchell, living nearby, and visited his brother-in-law, Samuel Rhodes, who resides a short distance from Penningtonville. 
Here he was recognized by Mr. Rhodes and his wife, who is the prisoner's sister. They testify that he spoke of the man he had left behind at Jennerville, and Mr. Rhodes says he described him as a man, having no one to look after him, who had been lost for a long time and was supposed by everybody to be dead, one whom the prisoner had had at Newark or New York, the sounding being so much alike that the witness was not certain which, and Philadelphia. The bearing of this description upon the identity of the man left behind is most important. You will judge whether it does or does not describe Goss and the man known at Newark as Wilson with great certainty. Lost for a long time, supposed by everybody to be dead, whom he, the prisoner, had had at Newark or New York and Philadelphia. On the evening of the same day, the prisoner, having hired a carriage and horse at Penningtonville, went to Jennerville, took the man he had left therein, and started back. When he reached Penningtonville in the night, this man was gone, and was no more seen alive. Bears Woods is by the roadside. Were the remains found there his? The last time seen, he was going in that direction. If Mr. Rhodes is believed, the prisoner had contemplated leaving him in the woods. When the remains were first uncovered, Mr. Moore testifies that the face was white and natural, says he looked to ascertain whether he could identify it, and believed at the time, and does still, that he could if he had known it. On being shown the picture before referred to, he says it bears a resemblance to that face. This, standing alone, would be of no value, because of its uncertainty. But Mr. Moore and others, who saw the remains that evening and the next day, say the upper lip presented the same appearance as the cheeks did where the whiskers came off on being touched, showing that the man had worn a mustache with side whiskers, that his hair was dark brown, mixed a little with gray, and Dr. Howard, as well as all the witnesses who examined the remains with care, says the forehead was square and straight, the face fine, chest full, shoulders well thrown back, the person very erect, and teeth regular and good. You will judge whether this is or not an accurate description of the man we have been following. In the same grave a shirt was found. It is not identified, for there are no marks upon it by which to distinguish it from others. There are many such, as Mr. Crockett testifies, but this witness says he sold a shirt in all respects like this, in Newark, to a man called Wilson, as he was informed. And Mrs. Toombs testifies that Wilson had such a shirt, showing another point of resemblance. Then again, a pair of Congress gaiters were found upon the feet, resembling those worn by the man we have been following. But a more remarkable and striking resemblance still is found in the fact that this man's gaiters were marked number eight on the inside near the top, if Mrs. Toombs is believed, of which you will judge, and had recently, as Mr. Saurine testifies, been half-sold, and the gaiters found on these remains exhibit a similar number in the same place, and a similar condition in respect to the souls. Now you will determine whether these are the remains of the man we have been following. If they are, and this man was Goss, 
then did the prisoner take his life? In starting upon this inquiry, the first thought that presents itself is, had the prisoner any motive to commit this crime? If the remains were those of Goss, you will still judge, as before remarked, whether he had not entered into a scheme to defraud the insurance companies by hiding himself from the world and endeavoring to create the belief that he was dead. And if he did enter into such a scheme, you will further judge whether the conclusion is or is not reasonable that the prisoner had also entered into this scheme. For it would follow that while Goss was thus alive under an assumed name, and while the prisoner knew this, for, according to the testimony, as we have seen, he visited him at Newark on the 11th of May, he appeared as a witness on the 28th day of the same month to prove his death, not, it is true, by swearing directly that he was dead, but by swearing to circumstances by which he sought to create that impression, and the result is the same. If it is true that the prisoner had united in such a scheme, it was very important to him that the existence of Goss should not come to light, for if it did, not only would the scheme fail, but the prisoner become liable to prosecution for conspiracy and perjury. If you find such motive existed, then you will judge whether the disappearance of Goss from the neighborhood in which he was known, and his reported death, did not invite the commission of the crime by reason of the immunity from discovery which these circumstances tended to afford. Still, a motive to commit the crime, and such opportunity to gratify it, would be of no consequence in the absence of evidence that the prisoner did commit it. Then what is the evidence that he did? If Wilson was Goss under an assumed name, and the remains found in the woods were his, then we have found the prisoner and Goss together on the first day of July. On the evening of this day, as we have further seen, the prisoner visited his brother-in-law, Samuel Rhodes, whose testimony I will now read. The evidence of Rhodes was here read by the court. This witness and his testimony have been criticized by counsel, and you will determine what weight his statements should receive. In this connection, it is important to remember that he exhibited the prisoner's letter, referred to, soon after it was received, and reported to his neighbors the interview, detailed here, almost immediately upon its occurrence. You will also remember the testimony heard respecting his character for truth-telling, and will examine the prisoner's letter to see whether it does not corroborate his statements." That letter appears by the envelope to have been forwarded in the preceding December, and Mr. Rhodes testifies that it was received at that time. On the evening of the same day, after the interview with Rhodes, as night was coming on, the prisoner started with the man by his side in the direction of Penningtonville. Bears Woods is about nine miles from the place of meeting, and in this direction the parties were going when last seen. John Hurley, who lives within a short distance of the woods, testifies that his wife, in the night, aroused him to hear a noise in that direction, that he distinctly heard hallooing, and distinguished the voices of two individuals, but could not distinguish any expression except the exclamation, Oh! that about daylight the following morning 
he discovered smoke arising from a fire in the woods, and several other witnesses testify to having seen fire in the woods on that morning. Now, if the remains found in the woods were those of the man who started with the prisoner from Jennerville, you will judge whether the prisoner did or did not carry out the design which Rhodes says he expressed in the interview a few hours previous, whether the hallooing testified to by Hurley, as heard that night, did not come from this man, and whether the smoke seen did not issue from a fire that consumed the bloody garments, as well of the perpetrator as of the victim, and other evidences of the crime. It is further shown that at about twelve o'clock that same night the prisoner returned the vehicle to the stable at Penningtonville, the iron supporting the dasher on the left side, where the man was sitting when last seen, was broken, and the leather bent forward. Two of the bows, supporting the top, on the same side, were broken from the bed and swinging loose. The oilcloth that had covered the floor was torn out and gone. The blanket and sheet that had accompanied the wagon were missing. What had become of them? Had they been stained with blood and consumed in the fire? After discovery of the body in the woods, the floor of the wagon was examined, and red spots, apparently made by blood, were observable on the edges of the boards forming the bottom, and underneath where it appeared to have spread. Dr. Howard testifies that, having applied microscopic and analytical tests to these spots, he ascertained them to be made by blood. Where the prisoner spent the balance of the night after returning the vehicle does not appear. He was seen early the next morning entering Cochranesville on foot. Later in the day he was met still on foot going in the direction of Jennerville. On the evening of the same day, about six o'clock, he appeared at Penn Station on the Philadelphia and Baltimore Railroad, where he took the train east, getting off again at West Grove, this being the point at which he and the former companion had, according to his own statement, left the train two days before. In a short time he reappeared, carrying a carpet-bag or valise, and entered the train going westward. At Penn Station he again left it, and passed in the direction of Mr. Miller's, where his mother resided. On the next day, being the 3rd of July, he took the train for Baltimore. When arrested, he made a statement which you have heard, and you will judge whether it is consistent with probabilities, or finds any countenance in the ascertained facts of the cause. We now repeat the questions before stated. First, were the remains found in Bears Woods those of Winfield Scott Goss? Second, if they were, did the prisoner at the bar take his life? Both these questions must be found against the prisoner before he can be convicted. In passing upon him, you will carefully weigh all the evidence, as well as the comments of counsel upon it, and will also consider the testimony which the prisoner has produced in regard to his former character. If you convict him, you must determine the grade of his crime. That it is murder, if he is guilty at all, has not been questioned by his counsel. But in Pennsylvania, the legislature, considering the difference in guilt where a deliberate intention to kill exists, and where no such deliberate intention appears, 
has distinguished murder into two degrees, murder of the first and murder of the second degree, and required the jury trying the accused, if it finds him guilty, to ascertain and find by their verdict whether it be murder of the first or murder of the second degree, and has further provided that, quote, murder which shall be perpetrated by means of poison or lying in wait, or by any other kind of willful, deliberate, and premeditated killing, shall be murder in the first degree, and all other kinds of murder shall be deemed murder of the second degree, end quote. Then, if the defendant is guilty, is it of murder of the first or murder of the second degree? If the prisoner is guilty of killing Goss, you will determine whether it is not plain that the crime was contemplated beforehand, and the killing willful and deliberate. The circumstances bearing upon this question have been so fully stated, in treating other parts of the cause, and must be so distinctly present in your minds, that we need not repeat them here. Still, this question is for you alone to determine, and if you convict the prisoner, you must say whether it is of murder in the first or second degree. In conclusion, we urge upon you to bear constantly in mind its great importance. To the prisoner it involves everything of earthly desire. You will, therefore, give to the facts not only their most reasonable construction, but also their most charitable and merciful construction. And if, when thus considered, they fail to satisfy you of his guilt, you will acquit him, regardless of all consequences, and he is entitled to the benefit of every reasonable doubt. A doubt, however, is not a mere possibility that the prisoner may not be guilty, but an honest hesitation of the mind arising from want of proof. If, on the other hand, the facts satisfy you of his guilt, you must convict him. In such case, no consideration of pity or mercy can influence you. To the tender appeal made by the presence of wife and children, you must turn a deaf ear. To listen to it would be more than a mistake. It would be a crime, a crime against the innocent, against society. With the consequences which may attend conviction, you have nothing to do. They rest upon others. If the evidence satisfies your minds of his guilt, you have no choice. Following the pathway of the evidence, you can turn neither to the right nor to the left, but must accept the conclusion to which the facts lead. If you entertain views unfavorable to capital punishment, you must disregard them here, remembering that it is not the jury, but the law that inflicts the punishment. The jury does not pronounce the sentence which condemns to death, but simply determines whether the prisoner has committed the crime. You will now take the case, and forgetting everything but the law, the evidence, and your duty, will pass an honest, deliberate, and fearless judgment between the commonwealth and the prisoner. The jury retired on Friday afternoon, November 7th, and on Sunday morning they sent a written request to see the judge. They were brought back into open court, where Judge Butler received them in presence of counsel and prisoner, and informed them he would hear their request. The foreman said that they desired more light in regard to the evidence of Dr. Bailey. 
the court sent for its notes and read the desired evidence very carefully. The foreman then said that the council had particularly called their attention to sundry papers, which they were charged to examine carefully, but which had not been given to them. The court said they would send for the papers and place them before them, which was done. The jury then retired to their rooms, and the court adjourned. At two o'clock p.m., the court was reopened on information that the jury had agreed, and the prisoner was brought in. The clerk then asked, Gentlemen of the jury, have you agreed upon your verdict? Mr. Morton, foreman, yes. Clerk, what say you in the issue joined between the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and William E. Utterzook, defendant? Do you find him guilty in manner and form as he stands indicted, or not guilty? Foreman, guilty of murder in the first degree. Judge Butler said, Gentlemen, your duties have been arduous and painful, and we have sympathized with you very deeply. We now discharge you, and for the careful and patient manner in which you have fulfilled your duty, you are entitled to the thanks of your fellow citizens. Mr. Perdue, of the Prisoner's Council, made a motion for a new trial. He was told that he had four days in which to file his reasons. The prisoner was remanded back to jail, and the court adjourned. End of section 43